we spend a lot of time talking about the changes we can make or preparing to make changes, but sometimes we don't make the progress that we really want on getting to our goal. And this podcast is really designed to give you the strategy for implementing change going forward. Um, and I'm super excited to have Dr. Martha Thanner here uh, with me today. She is an assistant professor in uh, the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology uh, with uh, Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. She's an instructor. She's a facilitator of small groups. Uh, she participates in curriculum development, and she's the course coordinator for molecular biology and medical genetics. And Martha, most recently, it was announced that you received the MSU-COM Statewide Campus System Professional Development and Advancement in Medical Education Award for 2020. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you very much. I was so excited and what an honor. So, so tell, us, um, tell us a little bit more about um, your transition in being a faculty person and, and how you uh, started identifying areas in the courses in which you teach um, to make changes uh, to more of that active learning uh, type style. Okay, sure. Um, so I think it all kind of started um, back in graduate school when I was a PhD student at Wayne State. Um, and I, um, it became clear to me that I wanted to dedicate my career to teaching. So, uh, and in, in kind of coming to that realization and talking with um, some of my mentors at the time, in particular, my PhD advisor, uh, he introduced me to some resources about effective teaching. Um, so as many of you probably know, we don't get a lot of formal training in teaching during our PhDs or during medical school, similarly as well. So we, we do get some experience doing it, not a lot of guidance or training in doing it. So when it became clear that that's what I wanted to do, um, I, I knew and was advised that it would be important to, to read about how to be a good teacher and to start putting some of those practices um, into place in order to, to be effective moving forward. And he introduced me to some um, evidence-based teaching resources, right? So we always talk about evidence-based medicine. Um, and of course, science and research in general is based on evidence, but teaching should really also be based on evidence. Um, and so a, a book in particular um, that I've always used for inspiration is a book called Scientific Teaching by Christine Fund, Joe Handelsman, and Sarah Miller. And really it's not necessarily about teaching science, it is a little bit, but it's how to teach scientifically, meaning using best practices and evidence that's out there and a lot of research that's been done about how our brains learn and how to teach effectively. So um, really it's in that book that I was introduced to this idea of active learning and the research base that supports its effectiveness in teaching. 
So after reading that, I really um, kind of became a true believer, if you will, in, in the practice of active learning. And um, when I was applying for the job at MSUCOM and writing my, um, my teaching statement about my vision for how to be a good teacher, I really drew upon the idea of active learning. So when I came to MSUCOM, I already kind of had this in my mind as something that I would like to do and implement um, in the curriculum at MSUCOM. So when I when I joined here and started to get to know the curriculum, which definitely took a took a while. I mean, when I first came here, it's it's a transition from going from a basic science researcher um, and a teaching assistant as well to teaching in a medical school. There are two very different cur curriculum. Um, the, the needs of the students are different and understanding the curriculum at, as a whole certainly takes time. But um, it did become clear to me that in general, the pre-clerkship at MSUCOM um, is lecture-based. And I do want to though point out right now the difference. So active learning doesn't mean that you can't lecture, okay? So these are not mutually exclusive. There's lots of wonderful active learning techniques that you can use in lectures. Um, but in general, I did notice that um, most of our curriculum is lecture-based. And like I said, that's fine. And, that, and it can be active learning as well. Um, but I wanted to, um, I didn't, I didn't see at least, you know, I, I, when I started, I was just kind of focusing on getting, what is the biochemistry curriculum, understanding that. And when I first came, um, it was lecture based. And, but as I said, many of the faculty were doing lots of wonderful active learning techniques in that, such as using um, eye clickers, also doing problem solving exercises, you know, so we, we cover pH and at the time we or we covered, um, you know, Gibbs free energy and so like for calculations, you know, people were stopping and giving the students time to work through questions in class. So all of those are wonderful active learning techniques. But I was just interested in taking a little, uh, taking it a little bit further and exploring some of the other active learning techniques that I had read about before um, in some effective teaching methods like flipped classrooms, um, problem solving or case solving sessions where you have smaller groups of students and those students are collaborating together um, to solve problems and learn together. Okay, so that's what I, I saw as kind of a, a need or something that I thought I could bring to the existing curriculum to help um, make a make a change and and some improvement. Yeah, so it's interesting. You and I kind of had a, a similar starting point because when I started uh, just over a decade ago with MSU Com, coming in as new faculty, you're given you know the your lecture assignment, um, and a lot of it is getting to learn what else is being taught in the curriculum. Um, and as an instructor, so a new faculty, um, a newer instructor, um, so for anybody who's listening, um, you were able to make these changes in your instructor role. It didn't take um, becoming a course coordinator to make changes, 
Can you talk about that process? Yeah, so um, really that I have to give credit to my colleagues um, that were here when I, when I started in the biochemistry department. So um, Dr. John Wong, Dr. Carol Wilkins, and Dr. Raquel Ritchie um, were already here and um, organizing and delivering the biochemistry content in the curriculum. And when I when they brought me in onto their team, they were very open-minded and very willing to try new things. So it was really kind of by their their, their grace and open-mindedness that um, they allowed me to do do a little bit of a, an experiment, if you will, in how we teach how we teach in the courses and and. I have to give you some credit too, Deb, because um, if you think, if I think back to what was the first session that I developed, you know, with the collaboration of the other biochemistry faculty, it was in OPC, and it it was something that you asked us to develop to help fill a need in OPC, and so it was your your request, and then the willingness of the other biochemistry faculty to let me do something a little bit different. Great, I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that that, that experience, um, you know, helped in, in stimulating going forward with this. Um, and, and you and I have both experienced this, um, where when we make changes, it's sometimes not perfect, it receives negative feedback. Sometimes it's just easier to revert back to the old way. Um, it sounds like you had a really good uh, support system with the other faculty that you taught with, but what um, is your process for that continued forward thinking? Yeah, so this is a good question because you, you're absolutely right. I mean, definitely did get some negative feedback. So um, I'd say, and constructive feedback too. So, you know, when I, when I did this, my vision was to have the students be able to work in smaller groups and to facilitate that and to do those types of activities. Um, there's a need to, we have 300 students per class. So to split them up into six different classrooms so that we have a more manageable size of about 50 to 60 students in each classroom, and then within those classrooms, they can even further break down into smaller groups. So to help with that need, we needed other faculty to help us with this session. So we had six classrooms. We needed at least six faculty to help run these sessions. So after the first session, a big um, contributor to the feedback was the other faculty and their experience in facilitating the session. You know, what worked, what didn't work, where where did you have difficulty, where did the students have difficulty, and getting that, you know, constructive criticism feedback to, to think through, you know, changes and improvements for future offerings. So, um, and then from the students, point of view. So, you know, we always solicit feedback from them and I'd say, 
that it's, it's almost 50-50. Some students love these types of sessions and some students hate them. That's a strong word, but they can be pretty strong in their expressions of how they feel <laughs> about their learning experiences um, in, in giving feedback. And so it's a love-hate relationship for sure with the students. Some, some really like it, some don't. Um, so when you get that type of feedback from the students, really, you know, you have to try not to take it personally, which is kind of impossible. But I mean, so you can take it a little bit personally if you want, but then just try to get over that very quickly. I try anyways, and focus in on okay, is there something useful in this comment to consider? And then give it a full consideration, you know, what the student thoughts and their, and their point and really try to weigh, okay, is there something here that we can take and improve upon in that, and that warrants acting on? Or is there, or two, did we not communicate effectively with the students? So they weren't able to clearly understand our approach and our objectives for the session and therefore there was a disconnect between our design and what we were trying to do and how they experienced the session. Um, so sometimes it, I think it is just a matter of communication. Sometimes there was, there was like a logistical flaw, you know, that we didn't foresee or you know instructions were unclear or something like that and and those things can be easily remedied so just trying to put aside any if there's anything really directly just personal about the attack or even if it feels personal because you designed the session and therefore when they don't like it you feel bad about it just trying to put that aside and focus in on okay what is it that the student's really saying and is it actionable and if so you know how can we improve things and then I think one of the things that um, you and your team have been really good about is um, to the next group of students um, talking about the feedback that, that you received. Can you uh, enlighten us on, on how those discussions go? And I know that you guys, <clears throat> excuse me, have had like some small cohorts at the end of um, each semester to, to talk about the course and give you guys feedback. Uh, tell us what that's like. Yeah, so we do often do focus groups um, after the courses have uh, been offered. And basically, um, I'm trying to think of how we went about doing that. Um, like, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to think recall is the selection process for the students. If we just opened it up to whomever, I. I think actually when I've done it in the past, I tried to invite students from a range of performance, if you will. So I actually, I believe I, I took the grade book and kind of tried to separate it into groups of, you know, top performers, middle performers, and then those who struggled in the course to make sure that the focus group had students from each of those layers so that I would get um, well-rounded feedback from all types of students. And I think I would select maybe like six to eight students and offer them lunch. That's a key, <laughs> a key piece um, is to give them lunch. And I think in focus groups too, and um, some of this too is coming 
from Dr. Wong, who I would identify as my mentor for sure, is to have a very targeted list of questions that you want to know about, about your course when you're getting feedback. Don't just set up something, show up and say, did you like it or didn't you like it? Because then it can really just turn into students complaining about stuff. Um, I think it's more effective to have very specific questions that you're interested in. You know, you might already have some feeling of, okay, this was something new I tried, so I want feedback on this, or this seems to not go well, so I'd like to get some feedback on this. And have some specific questions that you're looking for feedback on so it just doesn't turn into everyone complaining about everything. So when we've done that in the past, I think it was a very effective. I think the students really appreciate the sessions as well because um, they, they feel like they've been heard and they've been able, and that their perspective is appreciated. And, and it is, we do appreciate it. We need their feedback and we may not always, like I said, be able to act on it, um, but we do, we do need it, appreciate it, and we act on much of it. Yeah, I, th I think the communication is, is a big thing and across both UME and GME, communicating to our learners, um, <clears throat> the learning activity, the purpose of the learning activity. Um, and if this is something new that we're, we're trying um, and that we are open to their feedback and suggestions on how to make that activity um, stronger. Uh, you brought up your mentor, uh, Dr. Wong. Um, what role um, has he played um, in influencing the changes you've made? Um, and not just to rehash everything, but but how? Like, tell tell us your guys about your, um, your the influence he plays. Yeah. So um, he serves as um, support and encouragement just in general. And I, I think, you know, those are important qualities for a mentor. So like I said, you know, me coming in brand new faculty and here I've got this idea to do these different things, um, you know, that's not always like super welcome. So he, I don't know, he, he was very open and welcome and supportive to say, yeah, let's give it a try. Let's see how it goes. Um, let's go for it. I mean, that's really important. Um, and then also, I think he he's really taught me about planning and preparation, um, especially related to his experience teaching in medical school. Like I said, I had no experience with that coming in. And so, um, the level of planning, preparation, forethought, anticipating possible issues, you know, just being ready to do something like this logistically with 300 students takes a lot of attention to detail and trying to anticipate issues before they happen so that things um, don't fall apart on you. <laughs> Um, so I think that that is one of the biggest yeah, things that he's taught me. So <clears throat> you are, you are fortunate that Dr. Wong was within your department and somebody that you collaborated with um, for the courses that you teach. 
what do you suggest um, for those that you know are a single faculty in a in a courtship rotation or or you know um, on a rotation where it's just them that they're not co-teaching there's not other facilitators what do you suggest to them in terms of um, mentorship where, where should they be looking uh, for that yeah that that's a hard question because i like you said i i was very lucky um, when i joined on the faculty here that that john was just here and that was his role and he took it on so well. Um, so that kind of just fell into place for me. Uh, it is hard, yeah, if you don't have that. And um, especially, you know, depending on your personality, um, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert and I think it can be challenging just to, to reach out to somebody that you might not really know or hasn't necessarily reached out to you. So, but I, I guess I have identified other mentors over the years and it took some time. So it just took time to kind of get to know folks in the college and the university level. And then also at the national level, conferences, you know, and I remember the first kind of like medical education oriented conference that I attended. I really felt like a fish out of water. I didn't know anybody. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that this was a place where, okay, this is where I can make more connections and, you know, potentially find more mentors. But when you're so new and you don't know anyone, it can be hard to get started. I mean, even, you know, they say, well, okay, you meet someone and you get their contact information and then follow up with them after the conference. Well, even that can be hard to send an email. It's like, what are you supposed to say? So I guess my advice is to give it some time. Keep putting yourself out there. You know, I kept going to conferences and I kept presenting my work and my ideas. And now I'm not brand new. And I, I've start, you know, we start to see the same faces from year to year. And um, now I know people. And so, I'm able to, you know, include them in my network. So, you know, I guess that's my advice is just keep at it, keep going to stuff, keep putting your yourself out there and just give it time and, and form those connections. And that exact process has probably led you to being able to bridge the curriculum from course to course and semester to semester. Um, and I know that you are part of our first cohort in talking about bridging the curriculum between the UME and GME. Um, tell me about some of the ideas that you have for bringing UME faculty into GME and, and collaboration there. Yeah, so um, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one because I, I still am very, you know, interested in, in how, how to do that. And I do still feel, I do feel disconnected um, and like, I don't know much about um, that side of medical education. So, um, you know, I think events that like you put on the dinner, that that was great. I know that I met folks there and that was, that was wonderful to start opening up the dialogue. And then I think actually just from one of our, re our recent conversations, one of the, I think biggest areas for potential 
collaboration and working together is on scholarship. So um, I think that there's a big opportunity there for um, some of the basic scientists to get involved and in helping in mentoring um, our medical students in, in doing research. So I know one way that I've been able to start doing that is, you know, I do medical education research. Now, initially when I started, I was, well, first of all, I was new to the field. I'd never done that type of research. I was used to working uh, um, at a biochemistry lab bench. So I was still learning how to get involved in the field. And it wasn't clear to me at that time that that would be something useful to include our students on. Um, but then in the last several years, it seemed that that actually that would be useful to them. And just the, the process of scholarship and identifying research questions and generating hypotheses, um, searching the literature, you know, and then putting into place a plan of how you're gonna conduct and analyze your research, that's effective um, no matter what the topic, you know? So even though it's not directly related to patient care, uh, it's still excellent um, application of that process. And for those interested in academic medicine, it obviously would have a direct application as well. So I've been doing some of that, but I think that it could be taken farther in that, you know, folks and faculty at the undergraduate medical education level could be involved in some of the that's going on um, in in GME. It's just a matter of um, we, we don't know each other and we don't know the, the projects that are going on. And I think, you know, maybe faculty in the GME world don't know that we would be interested in helping or that it feels like there isn't a connection because, okay, this is maybe based on patient care or hospital setting. And so how could folks um, that don't have that background or aren't doing that help or why would they be interested, et cetera. But I think um, it takes kind of broadening back out, out your thinking and um, you know, recognizing that you don't have to get into the minutia and the specifics. Like, if you just think more broadly that we are connected and we can all kind of work together and help on these types of projects. I think that that's great, Martha. Um, I know that we've talked uh, a lot about that and we were trying to figure out a way for just the faculty to start getting to know each other. Um, and scholarly activity is important on both sides of the medical education. And if we can bring faculty together on research, then we can start even diving back into curriculum. You then have a relationship with people across the continuum and you can say, hey, does this make sense to teach in my course? Or GME can say, hey, is this actually taught in medical school or do I need to spend more time on it when they're in clerkship or early residency? Um, which then brings us to um, my next question. And I know we as faculty across the continuum struggle with this, that when we have our learner in front of us, we want to tell them everything that we know. Um, but sometimes that gets into, you know, the unplanned redundancy. They've already learned it elsewhere. Um, so we come on that fine line of 
reinforcing what they've already learned and knowing what they've already learned in previous courses and then planned redundancy because we know that sometimes adult learners need to hear it more than once for um, it to make sense. So it, is there a, a process now that you um, follow in looking into previous courses or looking into future courses to see how some of the content that you specialize in is taught and, and where you can best uh, plan your curriculum? Yeah, so I think um, it, it, I've been pretty lucky in my role as a faculty who is 100% dedicated to teaching income because, the, I mean, this is my job is to, to know these things and to, to have the time to look into them. In addition, I'll add my role as a faculty at the Detroit campus has also been helpful with this in that part of um, what we do is help facilitate the lectures for the entire curriculum. So for example, you know, the students are, are sitting in cardiology lecture in Detroit, there's always a faculty person with them there. You know, even though I don't have a background really at all <laughs> in cardiology, um, I'm, I can still sit on in many of those lectures. And that's helpful to me because now I know and have a sense of and an idea of what they learn in cardiology. And that's, that's good for me to have a bigger picture of what's going on in the entire curriculum. And I've identified lots of, of things by sitting in, in on other classes in that role as my faculty, uh, as being faculty at the DMC. Um, I think, yeah, so it is really important to know what else is being taught in the other courses. And, and I'm not sure there is a great mechanism for that for everybody right now. Um, like I said, me it was just kind of by chance in my specific role and, and what my job is here that it came together for me. So right now, I think it's really kind of up to the individual faculty person to make that effort and think, you know, think about what content you're teaching and okay, I know I'm teaching this content and I see that it could also potentially fall into this course. Maybe I better look at their course pack or reach out to their course coordinator or whatever and see exactly what it is they are, they are teaching, if anything, on that topic. So, so really, I think right now it's up to us to make those connections and reach out um, to each other to get that type of information. Um, I'll add that I think another important source of, you know, how to determine what the students already know and what they need to know that we've used as biochemistry faculty is trying to look at, first of all, their prerequisite knowledge when they come into the college. Um, and we've used this process to redesign the two biochemistry courses. This is the, uh, the second offering of those new courses this year um, to revamp the content and say, okay, you know, they had this in undergraduate biochemistry or they, they covered this on the MCAT. So we're not going to spend the time to do that again for them. We're going to assume they're coming in with that. Um, and then also 
you know, and we did, we took out quite a bit of content from the course um, when we did that, when we looked at that prerequisite knowledge. And then also thinking about, okay, what is it that we're teaching that is going to help them understand their systems courses later, and then also to be a good physician and do well on Comlex, et cetera. So in thinking about like the details that we were teaching in our course and thinking, does this just medical students really need to know this? And so, you know, we really tried to look hard at board prep materials and look at the downstream courses to get a good understanding of what's important for a future physician because um, we're on our team, our teaching team, we're mostly all basic scientists, except for in the genetics course, we do have a couple clinicians that help out. So we also work with them and their expertise to help, help understand what's important downstream as well. Some great points there. You brought up about going to conferences. Um, and I know that I do this too, but I often go to conferences. I become really inspired. Um, at the conferences. I have all of these ideas to come back, make changes, um, and I have the, the envision in my head that I can come back and make all of them at once, which we know is not possible. Um, so from your experience in redesigning different components of your course, how long does it really take to redesign or plan a single learning activity? So not the whole course, just one one change that you're making in your class and if you could walk us through that process yeah so that's a that's a good question and of course it depends on how big the change is so you know sometimes and i like to do this is identify low-hanging fruit you know from a, a conference i remember i heard a wonderful strategy of how students should be walking through um, clinical vignettes and how to help them with their problem solving. And that was super easy for me to take and apply. I just, um, you know, for one of my sessions, I took, there was some material that I felt like, okay, they probably had some of this in undergrad. So I moved that out into a required reading. And then I used some of the time in my lecture to actually, and I wrote new questions that are all, um, you know, like higher order problem solving questions, application of that material. And I took lecture time to walk through a series of those questions in this prescribed manner that I thought was so interesting from a conference. So that took relatively little time. Now, the change from going from a lecture to a non-lecture delivery of content, that takes quite a bit of time, I'd say you want to start planning a year in advance um, for sure. For example, I'll talk about the um, flipped classroom that we do in BMB 528, um, which is the molecular biology and medical genetics course. So the, the topic of that session is approaches to correcting genetic disorders and talks about um, like enzyme replacement therapy, gene therapy, um, as well as um, using antisense oligonucleotides as a, a therapeutic. Okay, so this topic we did used to cover in lecture, and now we wanted to take and turn this into a flipped classroom. So we did start planning this 
a year in advance. And part of doing that, of course, is you know figuring out what is the pre-work component of the session. And we identified the appropriate literature articles for them to read. We also created pre-recorded modules for them to watch to help cover kind of the basic science that would be necessary for them to understand these topics. So we had to record those lectures. Um, we also were very cognizant of the, we wanted to make sure that we weren't overburdening the students with giving them actual, like flip classroom in theory is not supposed to give students actual work. It's literally flipping their time. So time spent normally in lecture getting basic information. Um, and then after lecture, they go on their own, do practice problems, try to assimilate the information on their own. Flip classroom literally is just flipping that time. So it's really not supposed to take any more time on the students at all. Instead of getting the basic information in a lecture, they're doing it beforehand and they're using their class time to do the application assimilation part which is arguably the more difficult task. And so it's literally supposed to be a one-to-one -one swap, but we wanted to, some, some folks are skeptical, understandably of that, and it's important that we are aware of our students' time. And so one thing we really wanted to do is to do a dry run of the session, a, a test run, if you will, with some students to make sure that the work that we were gonna assign them wasn't an undue burden. So we did, we set up like a, a little test cohort of students the spring before the fall that the session was gonna debut. And we had them do the pre-work and let us know how long did that take you um, and get any feedback from them about, you know, was the article too challenging for you to read? Was it easy for you to read? You know, what? how do you, how did you go about it? What process did you use, et cetera. So, you know, we, we spent quite a bit of effort in preparing for that session just to make sure that it went off properly. And then with all of these sessions too, we make sure, because once again, there's going to be six faculty members facilitating a session like that. So we also need to make sure that all the faculty are ready to facilitate and want to and feel comfortable facilitating. So um, many of, I don't know how many of you have been thrown into a teaching situation where you didn't feel properly prepared. It's not fun, no one likes to do that. So we knew that it would be important to have very um, comprehensive materials prepared for our facilitators so that they felt confident going into the session. So we prepare what we call a script. Obviously the faculty aren't gonna directly read off of the script, but it, it literally walks through the whole session point by point, what, what's important for the students to be doing right now, what information needs to be delivered, et cetera. And there's a timeline, you know, down to sometimes the minute um, about kind of where you should be at. Once again, there's flexibility in that, but the faculty always knows, okay, I'm running behind or, you know, I'm not going to make it through so that they can, you know, get through the session accordingly. And then also there's always a PowerPoint um, associated with the session to keep things on track while they're actually facilitating so that um, the students know what's going on, they know what's going on and, and the session runs smoothly. So once again, like I said, a year in advance to make sure you can prepare all of those items 
get them to the faculty, get feedback from the faculty prior, um, get questions from them. Sometimes when we first started these, if the faculty were brand new to running these sessions, we would have a, a meeting, you know, about a week before the session and go through the session to make sure everyone knew what was going on and how to deliver um, the content. So. That's great. Before we open it up to questions to those participating, give us our, your top three uh, takeaways um, or tips for effectively redesigning one component of what somebody teaches, whether it's a course or clinicals, top three tips. Yeah, I'd say, you know, do your homework. Um, like I said, I, I really am a big advocate for using best practices and doing evidence-based teaching. There's a lot of people that teach really well and that that's their whole career is, you know, researching te teaching methods and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, do a little bit of homework to, to read about effective strategies. Um, also, yeah, thorough and careful planning and forethought. Um, as I mentioned, the logistics of our curriculum can be challenging sometimes. You know, we have 300 students, so, um, and I'm sure you guys have all experienced this. Um, things will go wrong. And so <laughs> the more that you can be thorough and carefully plan things and think ahead and predict those problems before they happen, the better you'll be, then you will just have things happen that were just unpredictable and, and whatever you learn from those and move on. Um, and then I'd say, then reflect, you know, doing careful reflection and evaluation of your sessions. So really think about what worked and what didn't work and try to get some data too. Um, you know, a lot of my medical education research, well, all of it, I guess, is really just trying to evaluate my teaching and others teaching and how we're doing and what we can do better and getting insight into medical students and how they learn. So making sure to go through um, that process of reflecting and getting feedback from both faculty that you work with and students. And then to, I know that was three, but one more, don't be afraid to make mistakes. So it is hard when stuff doesn't go wrong or doesn't go exactly how you wanted it to in front of the students. Um, but I don't know, I guess I've just learned to just kind of to get over that knowing that, you know, I put in my best work for this session and that um, I'm going to learn from any mistakes that did happen and make improvements for the future. And that's just, that's just life in general, I guess, but it's also teaching and, you know, we're always learning and doing experiments and, and improving from there. Great, thank you. So if anybody has any questions, um, feel free to uh, type it in either the Q&A or the chat and uh, we'll share them with, with Martha. Martha, thank you so much. I know that you have done so much um, with uh, the lectures that you teach and now um, as a course coordinator for the molecular biology and medical genetics course. 
Um, and it's no wonder that you are the recipient of the MSUCOM SDS Professional Development and Advancement in Medical Education Award for this year. You've definitely taken um, your uh, teaching um, to, to the next level and what you're offering the, the students. Well, thank you so much, Deb. It's been really fun to be able to talk um, talk to you about this. and. Um, in the name of mentorship and networking and collaboration, I do want to throw out there that anyone can contact me anytime that's interested in teaching methods, medical education research, scholarly activity, anything. Um, always up to try new things and collaborate, um, however. So, Martha, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Deb.